Good morning. My name is Kelly Scott, and I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. Uh, Many of you know I've been helping out some as a pastor here over the past year uh, while leading a campus ministry called Athletes in Action. And I just transitioned from that role to full-time pastor here at Trinity uh, about uh, 35 hours ago. Uh, and, and this is what they have you do. Okay. I wasn't going for that, by the way. But uh, th- this is what they have you do, though. Uh, it's, it's part of the Trinity boot camp to preach within the first 48 hours of, of signing on. Uh, it was actually Pastor Jesse who developed the boot camp curriculum. So you can, you can blame him for anything you'd like this morning. Uh, I did find the 5 a.m. trumpet calls for scripture drill a bit much, Jesse, but uh, actually I, I'm, I'm more than happy to open God's word for us this morning. And if you are new to Trinity, I want to add my welcome to you. We are really glad that you are here. I'd love to meet you after the service um, and, uh, and get to know you a little bit. Throughout much of the summer, uh, we will be in the book of Psalms, specifically those known as the Psalms of Asaph. Uh, Our senior pastor, Chris Colquitt, kicked us off a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 50, and today we will be in Psalm 76. So I ask that you give your attention to the reading of God's word, which you may find in your order of worship. Psalm 76, a psalm of Asaph. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. If you are remarkably observant this morning, you might have noticed a common pattern within the four stanzas of this psalm. Each of those stanzas begins with one verse describing something that is true about God, words that describe his glory and greatness. So verse one, in Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. Verse four, glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. Verse seven, but you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when your anger is roused? And verse 10, surely even the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. 
And then each of these verses is followed by two verses describing the acts of God to deliver his people, to deliver the humble. Acts which display the glory and power just described in the previous verse. The fourth stanza actually breaks the pattern a little bit, but we'll not worry about that for now. Generally, the structure highlights, first, the glory of God, and second, God's deliverance of the humble through the judgment of the proud. And so as I studied the psalm this week, it prompted me to ask two questions of myself. The first being, where am I going for glory? And the second, whom am I trusting to get there? For the purposes of our outline this morning uh, and our common reflection, I'll, I'll turn those into communal questions. Where are we going for glory? Whom are we trusting to get there? And so first, where, where are we going for glory? Since we are all made in the likeness of a glorious God, all of us long for glory. This is why we feel it so intensely when our lives feel bereft of glory. It's why there is an enormous market for travel shows and cooking shows and home and garden shows and sports highlights, right? They are all tastes of glory. ESPN.com knows that they can get a whole lot of people to watch a 15-second commercial in exchange for just a 15-second clip of athletic glory. That's a terrible exchange rate, by the way, on commercial time. But they know they can do it because they know we're suckers for glory. That's why we may go searching for glory in other people's Instagram lives or their Pinterest boards, especially at the end of a long day that did not feel particularly glorious. And we feel the need for a little glory spike before we go to bed. That's why we go searching for glory in our own experience and adventures as well. We were made for glory. In this psalm, each stanza's opening verse tells us something unique about the glory of God. And so we're going to stop and look at each one. Verse 4 makes the most obvious claim of God's glory. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. We sang about this, how great thou art, right? You can imagine the psalmist taking in a mountain range in the distance and being overwhelmed by its beauty, its grandeur, its richness, teeming with life amidst various shades of greens and browns. We've been there, haven't we? We live in Charlottesville. We're near the Shenandoah Valley. We, we've been there. And as we take it in, it then hits us that, that there must be an artist who painted this living landscape. And we think how good and beautiful and great and awesome is this artist, this God. How great this God must be. If only we thought like that all the time, right? Far too often I am guilty of stopping at the lesser glory. Worshipping the created thing rather than the creator. And so I want to ask you, where are you going for glory? In your day to day, are you stopping at the lesser glory of the amazing Landscape, or wherever you spot glory in your day-to-day? Or do you enjoy that glory, but then continue on to seek the glory of the artist who is God? Like the true lover of art, do you seek to know the artist behind the art? 
This verse reminds us that, that we are called to this kind of life, of, of seeking to know the artist. It reminds us that, that God made us for himself to find lasting, always accessible glory in him. In verse 7, we see another aspect of God's glory. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? This verse speaks to God's holiness, his, his otherness. Both the otherness that would allow God to create, for instance, a, a mountain range, which we can't do. But especially here in this verse, the otherness of God's unchanging character, his absolute purity and incorruptibility. And his corresponding disdain for all that corrupts his good creation, especially for that which corrupts those made in his image. And while this is great cause uh, for our cause for great fear for all who would stand before God on their own merit with no advocate or defender, it is cause for joy and comfort and worship when we are able to clearly see the beauty of God's character. In fact, the psalmist here, he clearly does express that the warranted fear of judgment when God's holy anger is roused, and yet these words are in the context and security of worship. The psalmist is, is in awe of the holiness of God. In case that kind of seems out there for you, um, and it does for me sometimes. Uh, I want to. I want to break uh, down. Um, I want to break this down here for a second. If you're like me, uh, you you frequently, or or at least from time to time, find yourself rather unconcerned with the things of God. You're not intensely drawn to goodness and faithfulness and purity, nor are you too repelled by the evils of the world. In fact, we grow quite comfortable with those evils outside and within, uh, so long as they do not impinge on our comfort. And there, there are a number of ways that God uses to, to draw me out of my slumber, uh, including other believers throughout the week uh, in fellowship, rubbing off on me in really good ways, uh, and particularly gathered worship on Sunday mornings, what we're doing right here. He often uses these things to rouse me out of my slumber. But when I find myself sleepy toward God in the middle of the week, it, it's also really helpful for me to think about the world in very stark terms. I actually did this the other night when my heart was not feeling especially warm toward God. I remind, reminded myself that one of two things is true. Either... There is no inherent meaning to the world. No right and wrong, no morality, no inherent meaning to our work, our sexuality, our giftedness, our possessions and money, our relationships and how we treat one another. Because there is no personal moral God who created the world with purpose and meaning. And so the world just is. It's whatever anyone wants it to be. Or there is a personal God. Who cares deeply about the world? And by making us in his image has implanted in us all of these beautiful ideas and realities of kindness and justice and generosity and truth and lifelong faithfulness and unity. 
and the inherent dignity and worth and equality in every human being. And if there is this God, then this God is holy and awesome and worthy of our praise. And when I think about it like that, I know which of those two scenarios is true. And so as I reminded myself of these things before God in prayer and reading a little bit of Romans 1, not only did I find my heart convicted of a bunch of ways that I failed to embody God's character in my life, but I also found my heart warmed to find true glory in the beauty of God's character. Hopefully that exercise is helpful for for someone. We were made to find our glory in God's holiness and the beauty of his character. And so while verse 7 speaks to his holiness and his holy anger toward evil, the the psalm begins with God's nearness. Verse 1 speaks to how changing, corruptible, and corrupted people like me are still able to know and find our glory in God. I would say that this verse actually provides a, a, a wonderful description of the church. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. And you might be thinking, that didn't say anything about the church or about how corrupted people can know God. But I think it actually does. In the Old Testament, God's people were a, a geopolitical entity as well as a spiritual community. God called a man named Abraham and he made him into a great nation, Israel, that would be blessed by God. And they were to display uh, his glory and goodness to all the nations around them so that all the nations would know God. But God did not call Abraham because he was good. We're told that Abraham was off beyond the Euphrates River worshiping other idols. God called Abraham because God was merciful. From the beginning, Abraham's relationship with God was based on sacrificial mercy, symbolized in the bloody sign of circumcision, which God soon gave Abraham, and later in tabernacle and temple sacrifices, and ultimately fulfilled in Abraham's seed, Jesus, who provided the perfect final sacrifice for sin. And Jesus came through the line of Judah, Abraham's, one of Abraham's many great-grandsons, The preeminent, Judah became the preeminent tribe of Israel by God's choosing. And the seat of Jerusalem, of the temple, and of the kingship of Israel. And so when the psalmist says, in Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. He's not speaking of Judah or Israel's spiritual sensibilities or their spiritual strength or their spiritual supremacy. He is speaking of God's loving condescension toward Judah in making himself known to a hard-hearted people. The entire psalm is actually a tribute to how God has mercifully established and protected Jerusalem as his abode. We read in verse 2. By the way, Salem and Zion are both names for Jerusalem. The entire psalm speaks to how God has mercifully established Jerusalem as his abode, not to how Israel has established Jerusalem as God's abode. 
And when Jesus enters Jerusalem hundreds of years later, he does what Israel had mostly failed to do. He finally sets into motion the fulfillment of God's call to extend his blessing and mercy to all the nations, transforming the people of God from a localized geopolitical entity to an international spiritual body known as the church. And so through the mercy of God and Christ, and not because of anything that we have done, we can say, in the church, God is known, and his name is great. It's because of what God has done that we can say that. Several of you know uh, that my wife Nancy and I were recently on a missions trip with Athletes in Action in, in Rome, in Napoli, where some new cool works are beginning. Um, and, where, and while I would love to tell you uh, more about the mission trip, uh, for now I'm just going to tell you about a pizza place uh, that we stumbled upon in Napoli. It was called Santa Maradona, or Saint Maradona, uh, named after the patron saint of Napoli, Diego Maradona, who, along with Pele, is considered to be one of the best two soccer players of the 20th century. You see, uh, Maradona played for Napoli in the 80s and 90s and led them to their only two Italian league championships in the history of the club until just a month or two ago, 33 years later, um, they won it again, with their team's captain stating that the deceased Maradona was watching over them. And so in spite of Maradona being from another country and their continent, he's from Argentina, there are homages to Maradona throughout the city along with light and blue streamers, the team's colors, connecting all the buildings across narrow streets right along with the clotheslines. But just a few feet uh, from Santa Maradona Pizza is the central Maradona shrine, uh, probably a 30 by 30 yard square with this enormous uh, Maradona mural about 30 or 40 feet high on the building side uh, towering over the square that has all kinds of Maradona tributes and gear and there's just this constant Maradona Napoli team buzz. Anyone visiting Napoli can hardly help but discover that Maradona is known and his name is great in Napoli. And it was such a vivid, albeit counterfeit, picture of the zeal and joy and praise of God in his church when we are finding our glory in him. An entire city caught up in the glow of this man. How much more should we find our glory in the God of glory, the God who made Diego Maradona and who has made himself known to his church, who has made his glory known to his people in Christ. I should say that, that I read uh, 1 Corinthians 10 before we went into the pizza shop, and the Apostle Paul told me in that passage that we could eat the pizza uh, as long as we did not participate in the idolatry. Uh, sorry for the corny Bible joke there. Uh, as, much as, uh, as much as I love soccer, though, personally, I was much more tempted to idolize the pizza than Maradona. Um, finally, on the question of where are we going for glory, uh, briefly, verse uh, 10 tells us that in the end, even humanity's greedy, ambitious, self-seeking wrath will result in God's praise. Sometimes he uses that wrath explicitly for his purposes, as he did when he used foreign nations 
to, to chasten and humble and to judge his own people. But regardless, the first half of verse 10, surely the wrath of man shall praise you, points to God's triumph over human wrath. And that triumph is ultimately revealed in Jesus' victory over humanity's most direct display of our wrath toward God and our rejection of God, the cross. The second half of verse 10, the remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. In the words of scholar Derek Kidner, it implies that whatever is lacking in the judgment that man brings upon himself, the wrath of God will supply when he arises to judge the world. While God's glory is certainly obscured by human wrath in the world, his glory is not diminished by human wrath any more than clouds do harm to the glory of the sun. Where are we going for glory? Where are you going for glory? Our other question this morning is, in whom are we trusting to get there? Obviously, those questions are connected, but they're slightly different. Whom are we trusting to deliver us from the brokenness of our lives and the world into the glory for which we are made? Whom are we trusting to get there? It appears, as you, as you read the psalm, you spend a little time in it, it appears that, that the psalmist had a specific battle in mind as he penned this psalm. And we can't be sure of exactly which battle uh, that was. There's not quite enough detail. But the language leads a lot of people to think of a serious threat to Jerusalem around 700 B.C. When a dude named Sennacherib was king of Assyria and Hezekiah was the king in Judah. And Assyria had been conquering all kinds of cities. They were the big boys on the Mesopotamian block at this time. And, and they were about to sack Jerusalem, as they had many other cities, until Hezekiah and his officials and the priests humbled themselves, crying out for God to deliver them. And we're told that in response, an angel of the Lord struck down the Assyrian army of 185,000 men in the middle of the night. This battle, or lack of battle, would make sense of the language in our psalm. In verses 5 and 6, all the men of war were unable to use their hands. They couldn't even use them. They sank into sleep, so to speak. Horse and rider lay stunned, motionless. And their motionless bodies are stripped of their spoil from their other more successful invasions. And it would also make sense in the words of, uh, of the words in verse 8, from the heavens you uttered judgment. Not only because of the angelic activity and, and God winning the battle for Judah, but also because God's victory here was preceded by an extended message to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah. A message where God specifically descri describes his ultimate control over Assyria's wrath, which will end and their judgment. And so that makes a lot of sense uh, of this psalm. But whether or not this is the precise reference point for Psalm 76, um, or whether it's referring more generally to God's victories for Israel, it, it does help us to envision what's going on uh, in the psalmist's mind. And there's, there's one more element to Sennacherib's threat that especially highlights our question, whom are we trusting to get there, to get back to glory? And I, I want to I point that element out. Prior to being struck down, 
I want you to listen to what Sennacherib's men shout to some leaders of Israel from outside the city walls. They're having this, they're having this confrontation, this verbal confrontation. This is from 2 Kings 18. I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, they say, this is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. And then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern. Until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life and not death. These are precisely the same promises of glory and precisely the same language that God makes to his people after rescuing them from Egypt. And that he continues to affirm throughout or up until and throughout the time of this psalm. God and Assyria make the same, or at least very similar, promises of glory. One is the route of faith. One is the route of sight. One is trusting in God's power and the other in human power. And there's a third crucial difference. One is trusting the Lord to deliver not only from the ravages of sin, but also from the power of sin. The other is trusting in human power merely to be delivered from the effects of sin. And so often this is all we want, right? We don't like the effects of sin and brokenness on our lives. Of course, everyone wants to be freed from the effects of sin. Conflict at work, trials at home, illness and frailty, financial struggles, threats of war, anxiety, injustices and setbacks to those whom we love. Everyone wants to be freed from these things. But the humble, the ones whom God promises to save throughout the earth in verse 9, do not merely want deliverance from the effects. Of sin. Instead, they realize their own deep need to be freed from the power of sin. And so they don't just want an improvement in circumstances or a change in the other people around them to make their lives better. They desire for God to transform them, even if it's painful at times, even if it would involve further humbling, even if it's the way of the cross. They know they need to change. They know they need God to change them. Who or what are the Sennacheribs and Assyrias in our lives calling out to us with promises of security, of comfort, of land, of bread, new wine, but are not able to deliver from the power of sin? For many of us, it, it may simply be the delights of the city of Charlottesville and the surrounding area, a wonderful place to raise a family, the perfect mix of all the amenities without the crowds and the traffic. It's like Mayberry and, and Manhattan or, or something like that. And don't get me wrong, these, these are good things. But it is very possible for us to place more hope for deliverance into glory and where we live than in God. And it's not real deliverance. Maybe that promise of deliverance is a boyfriend or girlfriend, a spouse, our kids' futures, 
Maybe it's a certain degree or a potential job, an investment or business deal on the horizon. Maybe it's the ability to travel regularly, sexual fulfillment, making a certain team or achieving a certain level of academic success. Maybe it's a political party or leader. I was just in a place that had a whole lot of trust at one point in their political system. And they lasted a really, really long time. Maybe, uh, or more than two to four times as long as our country has, depending on how you look at it. But it is, of course, ironic now to walk around a city that 2,000 years later still prides itself on being known as the eternal city, when much of the allure of that city is its ruins. And when its claim on an empire is 1,500 years out of date. It is a glorious city in many ways, but it is a fading glory. As I thought about that, I thought, you know, the, the world's gotten really comfortable with the ruins of Rome. I got really comfortable with the ruins uh, of Rome. Tra- people travel all over the world to see them, and they're a lucrative attraction, right? And it made me think, how comfortable am I with the ruin of my sin? That ruin is not nearly as beautiful as the Roman ruins. And yet because sin is always a distortion of something that is good, it's usually disguised in some kind of beauty. How comfortable am I with it? Am I trusting in the ruins of my sin for a fading glory? Or do I want God to free me from those ruins into a lasting glory? Do we marvel at the ruins of our sin, or do we look to the true eternal city? Jesus was presented with a similar promise to the one that Assyria made to Judah, and that the world regularly offers to us. In the wilderness, the devil offers him all the kingdoms of the world. It was a shortcut. It was a shortcut to what Jesus would already inherit by trusting in his father, what he already had and what he would inherit later But much pain would be avoided through that shortcut. In his case, however, the pain was not in getting rid of his own sin. The pain would be in putting to death the power of our sin by taking the destiny of all sin on himself, which is death. It's because he chose that painful path for us, trusting in the Father alone, that we can be sure that he is the one we can trust. To bring us in to glory. In conclusion, uh, verse 11 tells us what that trust looks like. I mentioned at the beginning that the fourth stanza of the psalm uh, breaks the course of the pattern of the first three stanzas. Instead of praising a truth about God in, in verse 10 and then describing God's acts in the next two verses, verse 11 speaks of our acts. Our response to God's grace, our response to who he is. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. You see, this verse describes much more than a mere mental trust or assent to a set of beliefs. It it describes a life of, of trust, a life of submitting our whole lives, all that we do to the Lord. It calls us to faithfully keep our vows which we actually do make to God and to one another when we join ourselves to his church. 
vows to continue to rest in the work of Jesus alone for our, or continue to rest in the work of Jesus alone for our salvation. They're vows of grace. Vow to live in humble reliance on the grace of the Holy Spirit as we seek to live a life that reflects his sacrificial love. The vow to generously use our gifts in contributing to the worship of the church and to the work of discipleship and hospitality and mercy and mission and evangelism. To strive in our relationships for the purity of fellow believers and for the peace of the church and to submit ourselves to the faithful teaching and instruction of the word. This is actually a beautiful life that's being described, a life of trust a life of generosity and giving back everything that we have to God. The vows are not a way to make ourselves right with God or to find glory in ourselves. Our vows are a joyful response to the mercy of God who has conquered our sin, who has made himself known to us and who has revealed to us that his name is great. It's only by his grace that we will keep them and enter further in to his glory. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are glorious and majestic. Lord, thank you that though we were blinded by our sin to see that glory, Lord, you have been merciful and you have drawn near to us and made your glory known. Lord, would you do so more and more? Would you work in our hearts by your spirit that even this afternoon and this week, Lord, that we would have eyes to see your glory. Lord, that you would show us what is fading and only points to you and what is truly lasting. Lord, would you give us hearts that want to be transformed and remade completely in your image and likeness, that we might reflect your glorious character and enjoy you more and more as we live out your good ways. Lord, we need your spirit. We are in continual need of your grace. We thank you that you delight to give it to us. In Jesus' name, amen.